Our Father, as we look to your precious word this morning, we thank you for your gracious love toward us in Christ. Please help us to understand his teaching and transform our hearts and our lives to be pleasing in your sight, now and always. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our eldest son, Archie, began kindergarten a couple of weeks ago, and it's been a big two weeks for him. Uh, He came home very tired after Hubbers on Friday night. Uh, He's at one of our local public schools, and last week he had his first ever SRE Anglican Scripture class with some lovely Christian women here from our church. And during the walk home from school, uh, he showed Jess and I what he'd learned in the class. And uh, in the first week, they were learning God's love reaches higher than the heavens from Psalm 57, verse 10. And uh, he drew a picture of some people who he loves, uh, his family. There's dad and mum and Jack. Jack's the little one. And so just on behalf of all the parents here, I want to say a big thank you if you're involved in Scripture uh, in public schools. It's uh, something which I think is uh, enormously beneficial and many parents here are thankful for the work you do week in and week out. Uh, I asked Archie though, how many other kids were in the class with you? Uh, He said six. I've since found out there might be eight. Uh, But I did the math and I thought it's a little sad actually, there are... About 75 kids in kindy in his cohort, and it seems that most of his peers uh, will be doing non-scripture. And I thought about, well, you know, why is that? Why is that, why is that the case? And I put it to you uh, that I think more and more families today, sadly, feel that raising your child to know God's scriptures seems overall like a bad idea. Raising them to be God-willing a Christian is overall a bad idea. However, many, I do think, still want the morality. Uh, I'm told the secular ethics class option, the alternative, was oversubscribed for Archie's year because parents today do want morality for their kids. It's a big yes for love your neighbour, but they don't want the part about God's love first, reaching higher than the heavens. They don't want the Jesus bit. Now, think about that for a moment. What's been lost in the process? where we've effectively thrown out any vertical basis for loving my neighbour horizontally? Well, I'd say an awful lot. I was listening to a talk last year, uh, which mentions the introduction to a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality. It's written in 2012 uh, by Duke professor Alex Rosenberg. And he answers 12 questions from an atheist perspective, and the last three went like this. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? His answer? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? His answer? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible or sometimes obligatory? His answer, anything goes. The talk I was listening to was by Rebecca McLaughlin and she commented, few atheists are so blunt. 
Uh, Rebecca holds a PhD from Cambridge University and a theology degree from Oak Hill Seminary in London. And she went on to quote from a book she'd recently reviewed called Atheist Overreach. Uh, it's introduced as a serious academic work. It's written by Notre Dame professor Christian Smith. And in it, Smith evaluates whether today's intellectual atheists are giving compelling reasons for their moral beliefs. And in it, he concludes, and he uses some uh, quite big words here, but see if you catch the gist. Atheists are perfectly entitled to believe in an act to promote universal benevolence and human rights, but only as an arbitrary, subjective, personal preference, not as a rational, compelling, universally binding fact and obligation. And Rebecca points out this news is deeply disturbing to her unbelieving friends. And she lists some reasons why. And see if they don't resonate with some people you might know too, because I suspect they may well describe well the other kindy parents in Archie's class too. It is disturbing for them, she says, because so many today believe in human equality. So many today believe in human rights. So many today believe that racism is wrong. And they think that these are self-evident truths. But if you look at the history of ideas, they are not. They have come to us from Christianity. Uh, which is why we are in a series here at Christchurch in the middle of this term looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because we're not interested in morality without Jesus. We're not interested in cultural Christianity. No, we're interested in the real thing. We want to know and engage deeply with what did Jesus actually say and teach? And so if you've not been with us so far for our series, uh, or by way of quick recap if you've been in and out, we're up to part number four in Jesus' sermon. And you might remember at the beginning he starts by speaking to his disciples about the blessed life. According to Jesus, to be a Christian is a blessing, not a curse. Jesus' followers now belong to and are reoriented by the seemingly upside-down values and attitudes of God's kingdom. Uh, then in part two, remember Jesus told his followers about their role in the world. They are to be salt and light. They are to be distinct. They are to stand out. And then last week we looked at Jesus' teaching about how he expects from his followers, chapter 5, verse 20, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we saw how far from coming to relax or loosen up God's commands in any way, Jesus came rather to join the dots up completely. He came to fill out the full weight of the law. And chapter 5 ends on that very challenging note of verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I think it's worth just uh, pausing there for a moment to clarify that verse because it is the hinge between chapter 5 and 6 where we're up to today. And if you did happen to listen to uh, David and Mandy's double Sermon Seasonings podcast last week, I haven't caught it all up myself, but they discussed how we can trip up on this last verse uh, if we understand that perfect 
word to mainly mean flawless or sinless. Dave explained how in the original language, the word translated perfect also carries the idea and nuance of being a complete person, of someone who has wholeness to their character in the same way that God does. In other words, Jesus is calling for Christian maturity. The perfect person is the genuine person. They're concerned not only with what's on the outside, but also with what's on the inside too. And you might be here today, uh, not a Christian, someone uh, who uh, perhaps uh, strongly dislikes uh, Christians, maybe because you've seen examples of religious hypocrisy. Uh, You may even be bothered by what I said earlier about morality being grounded in Christianity. Perhaps you've come across some very self-righteous or two-faced so-called Christians before. And if that's you, I want to say Jesus is with you. He feels the same way. He's not interested in phony followers. He's after the real thing. Uh, And so if you're here and you're calling yourself a Christian here today, we need to especially listen up. What Jesus has to say next in his sermon is challenging. It'll make you search your own heart deeply like it's made me search mine as I've prepared for this week. It's a convicting word for us. And so our big question this morning is this, who are you trying to impress? And if you're writing notes, I've got three points for you. Point number one, avoid hypocrisy. Point number two, guard your motives. And point number three, keep a kingdom perspective. Let's start with point number one, avoid hypocrisy. Uh, Jesus starts this section with an overarching principle for our whole passage, be careful. He warns his followers in verse one, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now, remember, he's talking to his disciples, and he has in view here all the kinds of spiritual disciplines that believers will do, not to earn their salvation, which is impossible. No, it's God who makes us right before him by grace as we put our trust in the Lord Jesus. But now that they are already in a relationship with God, a right one, Jesus does expect that there will be a practical side to their faith. And the issue here, though, is of their motives. Why do we do what we do? Who are we seeking to please? Uh, And just to give you the big picture of where we're going, uh, verse number one I mentioned already, it's the overarching general principle, the introduction. And then Jesus focuses on three specific examples of well-known piety in Jesus' day. These were the very conventional Jewish uh, religious practices. Firstly, giving to the needy, verses 2 to 4. Secondly, praying, verses 5 to 15. And thirdly, fasting, in verses 16 to 18. And you might have in your Bible some headings which help you to see those breakups that have been uh, added in. But you'll notice as we look more closely that each of the sections sound very similar. And it's like they almost mirror each other. Jesus starts by illustrating an example of hypocrisy, don't be like this, and why it's short-sighted. And then in each section, he teaches his disciples what they are to do instead. So let me show you. The first hypocrisy we should avoid, verse 2. So when you give to the needy, 
Do not announce it with the trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Well, what's the problem here? It's not giving to the needy. Jesus assumes his followers will do so. Notice he says, when, not if. When you give to the needy, and literally the word translated needy means to give alms, to show pity, to be merciful. Christians are to be generous givers. Note the problem that Jesus highlights here firstly is the way the hypocrites practice their giving. What do they do? Well, effectively, they blow their own trumpet. They draw attention to their generosity. And the trumpets, they may be metaphorical, they may be literal, we don't know. But either way, hypocrites want to be honoured. Literally, the word is to be glorified, praised by others. But Jesus tells them, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. They get what they're seeking, but they get nothing more. Have a look at the next one with me in verse 5. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Well, what's the problem here? It's not praying. Again, Jesus assumes his followers will. Now, the problem Jesus highlights here is the way the hypocrites pray. From being fundamentally directed upwards between them and God to instead being directed sideways, to between them and others. Why are they praying? Notice we're told at the end, it's to be seen by others. And Jesus says again, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. They get what they're seeking, but they get nothing more. And have a look at the third example in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. What's the problem here? It's not fasting. Again, Jesus seems to assume his followers will, not if, but when. And fasting, if you're unfamiliar, it's to do with stopping eating food or drinking for a time. And it was often a mark of humbling yourself before God as a form of mourning or repentance, often alongside prayer, occasionally to seek guidance or direction. The problem Jesus highlights here, though, isn't fasting as a discipline. Rather, once again, it's that the hypocrites are really just spiritual show-offs. And it's very much the same problem we saw back in our first Old Testament reading, if you remember, where God's people were fasting. But their fasting wasn't pleasing to God at all. They fasted one day of the week, But the rest of their lives and behavior on the other days didn't line up at all with the very fasting they were doing. And so in God's eyes, it was just a worthless act. And similarly here, Jesus says of the hypocrites again, Truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full. They get what they're seeking, praise from others, but they get nothing more. You see, Jesus is warning his followers again and again, Avoid hypocrisy. Do not be like them. John Stott describes that phrase as one of the key texts in Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount. Do not be like them. Well, here Jesus is saying very clearly in this section, don't be like the hypocrites. 
Because you see, the word hypocrite in the original language comes from the Greek word for actor. They are like actors on a stage who wear costumes to perform. But what's driving them? Well, we saw it over and over again. They want to be seen by others. But in the end, it's all for show because ultimately there's a gap between what's on the outside and what's on the inside. And Jesus here, in effect, unmasks the hypocrites for seeking praise from men rather than praise from God. And it's a great warning for all disciples of Jesus, a great warning for us here too. If you call yourself a Christian, it's worth asking yourself, why do I come to church? Why do I attend a growth group? Why do I give generously? Why do I serve on a ministry team? Why do I do what I do? And is it at all to look better to those around me? And is it at all to craft my image in some particular way? Well, if it is, Jesus calls that out as hypocrisy. It's a warning that applies to all his disciples. But it applies especially to those of us who serve in public ministry, in leadership roles. If we preach, if we co-host, if we pray publicly... If we sing, if we play in the band up front, if we lead Bible studies, if we lead scripture, if we lead kids ministry or youth ministry, if we serve on parish council, if we're a warden, or if we're involved in something I haven't mentioned, we especially need to examine our own hearts and ask honestly, what's my motive for doing what I'm doing? Is there someone I'm trying to impress? Who am I really seeking to please? Because at the end of the day, the problem with the hypocrites is that they look for approval only from the ones they can see. And so Jesus wards his disciples, do not be like them. You have a Father in heaven who is unseen, and our Father cares about how we practice our righteousness and whose approval we seek. So be practical in your faith instead but for an audience of one. And so firstly, avoid hypocrisy, which leads then secondly to how should we do that? Point number two, guard your motives. Having told his disciples to avoid hypocrisy, have a look next at how Jesus teaches his disciples about how they are to give instead. Look at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. How can we guard our motives? First, by not being a show-off in our generosity, but rather by giving secretly. Have you ever felt that desire? A desire to let others know who you sponsor, how much you donated, a cause that you get behind, or perhaps even what a big giver you are. But think about it in the end. Who are you really trying to impress? Your father who sees what is done in secret? Or someone else? And Jesus drives his point home by saying, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. One writer comments helpfully here, the point's not trying to, uh, not to try and obey Jesus' command with a literal preciseness by random giving as if we pull out a note from our wallet well that's what they get 
Or in effect, as if we close our eyes and punch the numbers in and we head down the keyboard as we fill out a direct debit. No, the point is that we do it and then we forget about it. We don't keep recalling it and gloat over it. In other words, not only are we not on about showing off, impressing others with our generosity, we're not on about impressing ourselves either by giving ourselves a pat on the back for how generous we've been today. Why? Verse 4 finishes, Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Well, what's the reward? I take it the reward is contrasted with the reward that the hypocrites have already received. They shoot for public applause and they get what they wanted. But remember this reward language. It came up first back in chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so I take it that the reward in the present sense, that verse came just after the Beatitudes, in some sense it is like becoming more like God, that as we're generous, we become generous like God is. We're merciful. We become known by God as we truly pray to and with Him. But it also does have a future dimension too. It's the welcome and commendation of our Father in heaven. It's like the well done, good and faithful servant we hear later described by Jesus in his parable about stewardship in Matthew chapter 25. Remember what the Master says to his faithful servant here Come and share in my Master's happy, in your Master's happiness. I take it that's the reward Jesus speaks of here to become more Godlike now and later to receive the joy and approval of our Heavenly Father, the welcome too. Why? Because our Father cares about how we practice our righteousness and whose approval we seek. So be practical in your faith instead for an audience of one. Let's have a look at the second example of guarding your motives and it relates to how we should pray. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, And pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, how can we guard our motives? Uh, Not by showing off in our public prayers, but rather by praying secretly. Go into your room in private where you won't be seen by others. Close the door so that you won't be disturbed or distracted. And instead pray to your Father who is unseen. Uh, If you're like me, that's not always easy to do, is it? But if you want to avoid being a hypocrite, like I do, then keep building into your life obedience to what Jesus is saying here, a routine of finding privacy regularly, putting away the phone or any other distraction aside, and spend time talking to your Heavenly Father as His child. Because that's pretty 101 Christianity, isn't it? But perhaps you've wondered, well, how do we square what Jesus is saying here about being secret in our righteous acts with what he said earlier in Matthew 5, 16? Let your light shine before others. And I think one writer puts it well. We are to show when we're tempted to hide. And we are to hide when we're tempted to show. 
That's to say, sometimes we need courage to let our good deeds be public, not for our own glory, but rather the glory of our Father. But sometimes we also need the humility to hide our personal devotion so that we don't become puffed up, so that we don't seek for our own glory like the hypocrites were so in the habit of doing. Why? Because our Father cares about how we practice our righteousness, whose approval we seek. Now, I also don't think that Jesus is saying here that you should never pray in public. Uh, In a moment, he'll teach his disciples a model prayer that starts, Our Father, which we'll come back to and look at in point number three. But we also see other examples of public prayer in the rest of the New Testament, in places like the early chapters of Acts, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2 and so on. But if you are someone who leads publicly in prayer on Sundays... Uh, or perhaps you pray together in a group, in your growth group each week, then I think it's worth just a few self-reflection, practical questions to check ourselves. Here's a few. Am I praying right now mainly to be accepted by others, to be accepted by the group? Or am I speaking to my Father in heaven? And in my praying, am I actually speaking to God at all? Or am I really just speaking about Him? In my praying, am I praying in a normal way? As a child speaks to their Heavenly Father, or is my prayer slipping into something a lot more like a performance? In my praying, am I really just drawing attention to me? My own brilliance or eloquence or turn of phrase? Or is my public praying an overflow of what I do in private regularly, when only God can hear my prayers? Now, these are intended as self-reflection questions. Uh, You don't need to think of anyone else, and please don't scrutinise our lovely Robin when she comes up to pray later publicly in our service. Uh, No, we all need to guard our motives. As Jesus will say shortly, worry about the speck in your own eye first. Well, let's uh, worry about the speck after you've dealt with your own eye first. Well, let's look at the last example, though, relating to how we should fast instead. It's in verse 17. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, from what I can see, fasting is not commanded explicitly of Christians in the New Testament, but it does seem to be an assumed practice. Later in the Gospels, Jesus anticipates in Matthew chapter 9 that when the bridegroom leaves... When he leaves, his followers will fast for his return. And we also see in a couple of other places in Acts how the early Christians fasted at times. For example, in chapter 13, when they prepared to send off Paul and Barnabas on mission. And in chapter 14, as Paul and Barnabas appointed new elders. But once again, notice how Jesus instructs his disciples to guard their motives by aiming for secrecy in what they do. They're not to make their fasting obvious to others. Instead, they are to act as normally as possible. Why? Because our Father cares about how we practice our righteousness and whose approval we seek. And just to clarify as well, I don't think Jesus is mainly saying in these three examples of giving, praying and fasting that there's no place to ever encourage others or model Christian discipleship to younger or less mature believers, whether in prayer or praise or Bible reading or any other spiritual disciplines. 
Now, the point Jesus is making is rather, would you still do these at all if no one else knew except God? And it's a motive question. Because after all, isn't at the very heart of why we pray, of why we fast, to seek after God rather than to try and win approval elsewhere? Which leads us into our final point, where to avoid hypocrisy, guard our motives, and finally and briefly, point number three, where to keep a kingdom perspective. Uh, You may have noticed already uh, that we skipped over a short section in Jesus' second example of hypocrisy dealing with prayer, and it's a section that actually stands out quite a bit, because it sort of breaks up the symmetry to the three sections we've seen so far. And I take it as very deliberate, I think actually it's quite central to this passage and uh, probably the whole Sermon on the Mount as well. Because the secret to avoiding hypocrisy, the secret to guarding your motives is rightly to know, understand and remember who your God is. Uh, Because did you notice in these 18 verses, Jesus, how many times he mentions the word Father? I counted 10. Now have a look with me at verses 7 and 8. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. You see, pagan religion has a completely distorted view of God. It is focused down here with me. And what I do in my religious attempts to get up there and try to manipulate God to do what I want him to do. It treats God like he is very distant. In fact, he's so distant that he's very hard of hearing. And it becomes all about babbling to God. It becomes all about my techniques. I need to pray very long prayers to be heard. I need to face the right way. I need to pray five times a day. I need to do my Hail Marys. But you know what Jesus says? Do not be like them. For your Father, verse 8, knows what you need before you ask Him. If you're not a Christian here, there is nothing more freeing or comforting than coming to know God as your Father by putting your trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus, in what He's done for you already, in what He's done by dying on the cross in your place for your sins in what he's done by rising again from the dead as the first fruits of what's to come. And you can do it as simply as asking God, your Father, to forgive you by putting your trust in what Jesus has done and by bringing your life under the Lordship of Jesus. And it's the best prayer you'll ever pray. And then Jesus teaches his disciples how to shape their prayers now that they are in a right relationship with God. And it is different to the babblers. And we don't have time to look at this prayer in the detail it deserves. But I think it's a good note as we uh, draw near to the close, just to make a few quick observations. Because it's a prayer that actually helps us to counter the very thing that's at at the heart of religious hypocrisy. The very thing that's at the heart of religious hypocrisy is a me centered view of the world. 
And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in a way that reflects God's kingdom priorities instead. And it begins with addressing our Father. Why? Because he's close and intimate with us. But it's kept in balance because he's our Father in heaven. He's in charge of the whole universe. And then prayer priority number one is, we want your name to be hallowed. Hallowed means set apart, honoured, glorified. And isn't that exactly what the hypocrites were after for their name? Priority number two, we want your kingdom to come. We want Jesus' saving kingship to spread further. We want more people to come into his kingdom. We're longing for the return of Jesus. We're longing for the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. Priority number three, we want your will, God, to be done everywhere. You see how radically God-centered this prayer is. Where to keep a kingdom perspective. And it's only then that we start to pray for ourselves, for God's provision in our lives, our daily bread, for God's forgiveness in our lives, our debts wiped clean. And finally, we pray for God's deliverance in our lives, our spiritual protection. And why does it matter that we pray, for, pray with a kingdom perspective, that we pray for kingdom priorities? Because our Father cares about how we practice our righteousness and whose approval we seek as we finish. We're to be practical in our faith but for an audience of one. By avoiding hypocrisy, by guarding our motives, and by keeping a kingdom perspective. And so why don't we pray together the Lord's Prayer. But as it comes up on the screen, I, I want us to pray it just a little slower than we normally would, because I want your hearts and my heart connected with what we are saying now that we've thought about what it means. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for the kingdom the power and the glory are yours, now and forever.